0: I love it when Pastor Woody remembers to make that announcement because that way I don't forget it. Somehow uh, I forget it nearly every time. Open your Bible to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. If you get the midweek email, you saw that we will be looking today at verses 8, 9, and 10 of that chapter. And if you don't get the midweek email, then uh, feel free to stop by the information center in the back and you could leave your email address and we will include you in that uh, update so that you can get uh, prayer requests, updates, what we're going to be studying and any changes to scheduling, et cetera. That's a good way for us to communicate uh, with you. So if you've not been getting those, then please get your information uh, to the ladies in the, uh, at the table in the back and they will help you with that. You'll notice that uh, we stopped... Last week at the end of chapter 12, and uh, now I'm skipping verses 1 through 7, and it's not just because I don't like those verses, okay? However tempting it may be sometimes to skip a passage because it's exceedingly convicting or very difficult to understand, Uh, we preached on this just uh, last summer, and it turns out the passage hasn't changed since then, and... uh, (laughs) nor has my understanding of it. So I would direct you to that. I think that was June, maybe early July. I can't remember exactly, but we preached on our relationship to the government at that time, and that's uh, the main thrust of that passage there. Today, however, we will be looking at uh, verses 8, 9, and 10. So you have your Bibles open. I want to read for us from Romans 13. Owe no one anything, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us. And we are grateful for the opportunity that we have to open it together. Father, as we look at this brief passage on love and what love looks like, I ask that you would help us to understand what is written here understand your intention here and to be able to clarify, maybe in our own minds, what love really is. So we ask that you would be at work in our hearts and in our minds, even this morning. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's very important to have clarity on what words mean. In uh, Russia, we, of course, spent a lot of time learning language and learning vocabulary, and Russian vocabulary is very large. It's uh, it's not entirely unlike English vocabulary that just goes on and on and on. And so we learned a lot of vocabulary, and <clears throat> I remember one day, um, the last, I think it was the last year. We were there, so my language was pretty good. I I was conversing no problem on numerous different topics. And one day, I turned down this road. It turned out it was a one-way street going the other way, or it was blocked off at that time of day, and I got pulled over. And of course, they don't follow you with a police car with sirens going and lights and stuff. They stand on the side of the road, and they point at you, and they wave you over to the curb. So you kind of feel excessively submissive, because here you are in a car. You could get away no problem, but you pull over. And you stop and they uh, talk at you through the window and whatnot. Well, as soon as I turned onto this road, I knew I had broken the law. I knew I had done wrong. And I knew that I deserved whatever fine or punishment or whatever that I got. It was an accident, but I did it. And so this uh, police officer uh, leans his head in the door and and is talking to me for a while. And and, uh, then he waves me over to his car. So I get out of my car and into his car. So I'm sitting in the front seat with him, which seems a little strange to some of you and seemed a little strange to me at the time also. And he starts talking about how expensive this fine is going to be because I've broken the law and how much of a problem it's going to be because I'm going to have to go down to the courthouse and I'm going to have to wait in line and I'm going to have to pay this fine. And it's going to be a big hassle. So why don't we just Dagavaritsa instead? That look on your face is exactly my look. And I thought, Dagavaritsa? I said, I don't know this word. What does this word mean? And, uh, and he was... He kind of looked at me a little bit frustrated and, and you, know, we, 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 you know, we need to do that. And so I said, I'm sorry, I'm, you know, I'm a foreigner and I'm just learning a language and I, I can't place that word. I don't know what it means. And so just tell me what, you know, what my fines, just write me a ticket and I'll go pay it. I know it's going to be a hassle. I'm sorry. I broke the law. I'm willing to go pay the fine. Well, the funny thing was that in retrospect, I knew exactly what that word meant. And some of you know what that word means without knowing anything about Russian. Well, for some reason in the moment, I I just didn't get it. And the funny thing was that I had known that word since 1997 when we lived there 10 years earlier. That's a common word, and it means come to an arrangement. Come to an agreement, right? Some reason I blanked, and I think maybe the Lord just blanked it out of my mind so I could honestly say, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) I knew exactly now what he was talking about, right? It's important that we know what words mean. It's important that we have a good definition of words and understand what is actually going on there. So you you want to know what I did in that instance when he wanted me to Dagavaritza, which meant give him some bakshish, some money on the side, so that he would just throw away the ticket, right? Well, he had started writing the ticket and everything, and I just told him, I'm sorry, I'm willing to pay the fine. And he finally just got frustrated and just kicked me out, and I went on my way. I didn't have to pay the fine, I didn't have to pay the, the bribe, I didn't have to do any of it. The Lord protected me, and ignorance is a bliss. is a, is a blessing sometimes. That was a, a time when uh, uh, it was a real blessing. We need to understand what words are, and what they mean, and, and precisely what they mean. Sometimes uh, words have different usages, and uh, even in different passages, we've talked in our hermeneutics class about what words mean in this context versus this other context, that Context determines what a word means and all of that. But over time, words change meaning as well. Over time, in different cultures, words take on different connotations and they have different impact. And so as we look at our passage today, there's a a word that we really want to focus on and kind of get a better understanding of what this passage teaches us about the word love do no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law there seems to be sort of an obligation here of love maybe we don't normally think of love as an obligation to another, maybe in certain arrangements and certain relationships, but he's talking about within the church. He's talking about how Christians treat one another. He says there's a manner of obligation that goes with it. And he says we are to have no unpaid debts. He says, oh, no one anything. Well, this. This verse is not really teaching, though it's often used in this regard and it's consistent with that, but this verse is not teaching us uh, that there is a biblical prohibition against financial debt or loans. There are other passages and other extensive passages that talk about the great dangers of being in financial debt, of putting yourself into that kind of a situation. For example, the borrower is slave of the lender, but this passage is not talking about that. The context is talking about something else. He's talking about a different kind of obligation. If we look at verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. That's obligation, that's debt. He says you have a debt in certain instances and we are to pay that debt. What debt are you talking about? Well, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. In this passage, he's not talking about finances. He's not talking about your personal uh, indebtedness or something like that as uh, what, what you owe the bank or whatever. He's talking about our relationship to society around us. We get to have the benefit of government, and there are certain benefits of government. They have the right to tax us. We have the obligation to pay taxes. That's what he's saying. We have an obligation to do that. We are to pay to all what is owed to them taxes, to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed. Those same governing officials deserve our respect, not because they themselves have merited that, but because God has put them in place over us. And so we owe them respect. We owe them honor. So there's a debt it comes by virtue of us being in society with these different entities. And we are to leave no debt unpaid. We are to give that uh, that ob- that uh, ob- obligation. We are uh, to give respect where that is due and honor where that is due and taxes where they are due, etc. We have obligation in that way. And so we are to have no unpaid debts. And then he says, love is a debt. Owe no one anything except... To love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That love is a debt that we owe to one another. And similar to the way we don't owe taxes to our government because our government is has earned it, we don't owe honor to our governing officials because they themselves happen to be honorable people, as if... If they weren't honorable people, therefore we would owe them no honor. He says, no, by virtue of the fact that you live in this society and God has put these authorities over you, you owe them honor, you owe them respect. And he says, by virtue of the relationship that God has given us, the society, the church, the community that he has put us into, by virtue of that, we owe one another. We have a debt of love to one another. We already owe it. I, I, I have a debt. I have an obligation to love you, not because you are lovely, but because God has put us together. We love our neighbor as ourself, not because our neighbor is as wonderful as we are, but because he's our neighbor. And so we have a debt of love for one another. And this is consistent throughout the New Testament. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. There are consequences. There, there are things you can observe. There are. It's, it, it's, a, it's a form of outreach, in a manner of speaking, the way we treat one another. And Jesus says more succinctly in John 15, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Nothing new. This is his commandment. Well, Paul says the same thing in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. It's part of being in God's family. It's part of being those who are among the redeemed. He has loved us, and we are to love one another. And John repeats a similar thing in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, if God so loved us... We also ought to love one another. That God loved us to the extreme. And even, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, when we were yet sinners, meaning when we were not ready to receive that love, he loved us then. That's when Christ died for us. So we give love even to the undeserving. Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter chapter 1, having Purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. This love that we have for one another is a debt, it's not just a gift. I think sometimes when I look at my own heart and and maybe it's similar for you, I, I decide who I'm going to love based upon who deserves it. Based upon who has won my love, won my affection, who has impressed me, who has done the things right for me that means that you've met my standard and so therefore I'm going to love you. That's my sinful, natural way of loving and I'm probably not alone. In doing that, we have a select group of people that we love because they've met our standard. Maybe they were born to us or maybe we're related to them another way. And so we can't really help it. But but when we have the choice, am I going to love this person or not love that person? Well, I think we have the sinful notion that this love is a gift that we give, that we get to bestow upon uh, those whom we wish. Those we want to especially honor, we will give them our love. He says it's an obligation we have, by virtue of the fact that we are the children of God. We are to love one another. We don't just get to reserve it for the select few, the the special few. But it is our obligation by virtue of the fact that we live in this community that we have been saved and placed into this family, the body of Christ, and therefore we ought to love one another. It's not just a not just a gift. I remember in 1993, I think it was 1993, when I went to Bible school in Texas, and uh, and the school was made up, uh, probably over 50% of the students were from Canada. And Canadian culture is very similar to American culture, but it has some differences. And, uh, for example, you never wear your shoes inside the house, okay, ever in Canada, ever. And some of you are like, well, yeah, of course. Well, sometimes I wear my shoes inside the house. But in Canada, never, okay? Your mother-in-law will catch you. <laughs> and that will not be good. <laughs> She's listening listening right now probably, so I'll hear about that. But <laughs> One of the things that needed, one of the differences between Canadian culture and Texas culture, and there are many more differences probably between Canadian culture and Texan culture than even here, is uh, the nature of tipping when you go to a restaurant. At least it was back then, and maybe things have changed, I don't know, but our uh, director at the school had a lecture that he would give to the incoming class, because it was consisted largely of Canadians, to, to explain to them how we do tipping when you go to a restaurant, in, at least in Texas, in 1993, okay? And he was explaining that a tip is not just an extra gift that you're throwing on top. The Dinner costs $10, and if you had some extra, you'd throw some extra right it's not just a gift he said no they actually factor into the payment of the wait staff that they're going to get tips and so the restaurant pays them less so that the tips will make up the difference and the end product will be something that is uh, is is livable okay and so actually they look at the fact that they're going to get tips and shrink the pay because that tip is expected and when i was growing up i got really good at calculating what is 10% which everyone's like well that's super easy right but if I was really happy, I could calculate 15%. I even got good at that, right? But what, the reason that needed to be explained was because in Canadian culture at the time, I don't know if it's different now, tipping was kind of an unusual thing. It was maybe an exception that you might tip, or there, you didn't feel an obligation. It was more like a gift. If you want to, throw some money on top. Well, that's not the way I was raised. I was raised that a tip is a normal part of paying for your meal. And that's a little bit of what is going on here that sometimes it can seem like giving love to another person is, well, you know, you can do that or not. It's up to you. You can freely bestow that love where you will. And he says, no, it's, it's actually obligation we have towards one another. And so the point that Charlie was trying to get across... For, uh, for the young Canadian students in particular is when you go to the local restaurant where, you know, the lady was making four bucks an hour to wait your table, you leave a tip so that she makes more than four bucks an hour. She's dependent upon that. You have an obligation to do so. And so that is the case with love and us. We, we are to owe no one anything except to love each other. It's not just a gift. It is an obligation, a debt that we have to one another. Well, then he goes into an an explanation for the remainder of this paragraph on the love love and how it relates to the law. He says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he goes into the commandments and talks about them. And each of those commandments, if you look at them, they have something in common. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, They're summed up in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Each of those commandments was horizontal. It was our relationship with one another and how we treat one another. It was a a horizontal relationship that he was focused on in this section here. And the, the laws that he mentions there, the brief commands that he mentions, you all recognize they come from the Ten Commandments. Right, that they are they are four of the Ten Commandments that are listed here, and all four of them come from what we call the second table of the law. The law, the Ten Commandments, the, the moral law as summed up in the Ten Commandments, is of course Ten Commandments. That's where it gets its name and very clever marketing, right? So it's the Ten Commandments, but it's it's made up of two different tables or two different tablets. You've got the first the first one, which is having no other gods besides the Lord. Well, that's obviously about our vertical relationship with God. And the second one is like it. We're to have no graven images, right? And so that one is a vertical relationship uh, as well. It has to do with our relationship with God. And even the third one, that we're to treat the Lord's name as holy, that's vertical. And then the fourth one, we are to treat the Lord's day as holy, that's vertical as well. And the fifth one is kind of a transition one. That's about how we relate to our parents, which are those people God has put in our lives as the initial uh, picture of who God is and our relationship to God. So you see the the parents, uh, the fifth commandment there is sort of a transition one. Uh, And then once you get to six and following, they're all our relationship with one another. You should not murder or commit adultery Uh, You should not steal. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. You should not covet. That's all horizontal relationship. That's what he's focusing on. He's talking about our relationship with one another. And so when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we have the two tables, the two tablets, right? Because they were written on tablets of stone. The first one refers to those vertical relationships with God. And the second one refers to the horizontal relationships with one another. And that's what we have going on here. You should not commit adultery. You should not murder, etc., So these are relationships of one another. And he says these horizontal relationships can be summarized by love. He gives those commands. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. uh, He he says, uh, excuse me, backing up to uh, the verse previous. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. They are summarized as love. Now that's not surprising to us because we've read the Bible. We've read the New Testament. We've heard that same command given in different ways and in different places. But I remember as a new Christian, even the first few years of my Christian life, thinking that the reason we were not able to keep the law was because it was so expensive. There were just so many bullet points there were just so many aspects of life that it covered that one could never keep all of those laws straight and so you were bound to stumble in some way just because you forgot it right the law is just too big it's too broad it has too much to it and therefore we aren't able to keep it so that's that's kind of what i thought in my early years as a christian but when you listen to this statement when you listen to this command you shall love your neighbor as yourself And that's the summary of the law. You realize that I was mistaken about why the law is so difficult to keep. It's not because it's so extensive, it's because it goes right down to the heart of my motivations. It exposes what I really value and what I really desire. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's hard not because it has a lot of points, not because there's a lot to remember, not because we can't keep it all straight. It's not a mental difficulty that our brain is too small. It's a heart difficulty. I don't want to love my neighbor as myself. I love myself a lot more than I love you. (laughs) That's my sinful problem that I have. That's our nature. That's where we find ourselves. Of course, Paul didn't come up with this and He's, he's, uh, he's quoting, You he may be quoting from Jesus, or he may be quoting from Leviticus 19.18 that says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So you have it even in the Old Testament that expectation was given, that summary of the law. And Jesus refers to it, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 22, Jesus refers to the same thing. Matthew 22, verses 34 and following. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. They thought they would catch him. They thought they would test Jesus and see what he thought on this question, that he would stumble in some way. What is the great commandment? Well, he summarizes the first table of the law. And he says, I'll summarize it for you. Here's the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your capacity. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two hang all the law and the prophets. This is the summary. This is the core. This is the main aspect of the entire law. So if Jesus is able to summarize the entirety of the law into two simple statements that are easy to remember, easy to repeat, and yet... Keeping that law is impossible for us. That reveals that the problem is not in the length of the commandments or how many subpoints there are. The problem is in the person trying to keep the law. I'm selfish. I would rather serve myself than God. I would rather serve myself than my neighbor. And that's the condition into which all of us are born. And therefore, we are unable to keep His law. And so back in Romans chapter 13, after having looked at the second table of the law and summarizing it as you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love fulfills law. So he's able to summarize it, he's able to bring particularly that second table, which is Mainly what Paul is focused on here, about our relationship with one another. How we are to relate with one another. How we are to think about one another. He's able to summarize it and say it is love. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. There may be a lot to it. You may be able to talk about what that love looks like in different circumstances. The essence, the core of it is love. Which is an unusual statement if you think about the way the commandments sound. You shall not. You shall not. You shall not. It sounds like the commandments are given as a roadblock. Yeah, you're you were wanting to go down this road, but don't. You shall not commit adultery. So you're going to go over here. You, you you're you're heading towards a uh, theft. You shall not steal. So there's a roadblock. You see it's like a roadblock hitting you in. Right? that's the notion we get. That's when you read through and you think about you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you think, that's a lot of knots and it kind of keeps me right here, right? It it's to hem me in. Well, in a sense, that's true. In a sense, that's what's being said is is our flesh wants to go that direction. The natural man wants to pursue those things, and so the law is given as a roadblock to say, No, to pursue that thing is to dishonor and disobey God. But there's something I want to think about briefly when we think about the law in this. Paul says love fulfills the law. That makes it sound like law is an action. It's a thing to be done. It's not simply a prohibition. It's not just a stop sign. It's not just a, 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 a don't, you know, don't cross here, no trespassing sign. It's something that can be fulfilled. It's about action. It's about motivation. It's about how we relate to one another. And I think that's important for us to think about when we think about the law, that Paul is able to say love fulfills the law. Love performs actions towards one another that are in fulfillment of, in keeping with the law. And here's what I mean by that. If you just think about, uh, you shall not commit adultery. Is that prohibition all that that means? Well, no, he he means pursue faithfulness. If adultery is this direction, he wants us to pursue faithfulness. He wants us to run the opposite direction. That's love, is pursuing faithfulness, faithfulness, not just avoiding adultery. Or murder, you shall not murder. You know, like just stop that. Don't do that thing. Right? Now we know Jesus talks about these in Matthew chapter five. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning, that actually it's not just, you know, don't put a person to death in an unlawful fashion. It's don't even desire that. So the law goes right down to our heart, to the things that we desire. That that if you hate that person, you're you're actually headed down that road. That if if all bets were off, if no one would ever catch you, if no one would ever find out and there would be no punishment, you would indeed kill that person. Or you're headed that direction in your motivation. Is that all it's saying is don't be like that? Don't feel like that? No trespassing? No. The, The law tells us not only don't kill that guy, but pursue his good. Pursue his blessing. Pursue life. Pursue his development, pursue his well-being actively, not just keep yourself from killing him or wishing him dead, but instead seek and pursue what is good for him. Don't steal. It doesn't just mean don't take his things. It means behave in such a way that you are rejoicing that he has those things and you are actually working to protect and keep him able to have those things. So that if you see someone breaking into your neighbor's house, you stop him, right? Or you see someone driving off with your neighbor's car, you at least report it. I'm not trying to get you shot or anything. (laughs) But you act to stop it. You don't just say, well, I didn't steal it. You know, that's fine. I don't care that someone else did. No, you're actively working uh, to preserve what is his. Love fulfills the law. Love pursues the obedient and the loving thing that is the opposite of, Of these prohibitions. The opposite of murder would be to pursue well-being. The opposite of adultery would be to pursue faithfulness. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And I could go on and develop that more. And it changes the way we read the Ten Commandments. It changes the way we think about the law. That loving someone truly will lead us to do the exact opposite of adultery. We will seek faithfulness. For ourselves and for those we love. The true love will lead us to protect what belongs to another rather than steal it or even allow it to be stolen. We seek to protect the property of another. Loving someone truly means telling the truth to them and about them. It doesn't just mean stop yourself from lying. But it's to speak truth, to seek truth for them and on and on. This is the biblical notion of love. Love fulfills the law. So you're celebrating because we've already finished our our paragraph, but I've still got a whole other point left, right? Because I want to make some observations about what we learn about law and uh, love, right? About a love that is Christian. A love that is Christian. First of all, thinking about what Paul has said in our brief little paragraph here, I think helps us in our understanding of the law. We understand the law better when we think about it in terms of God telling us to pursue the opposite of what he has prohibited. That's different than the the notion that we should just stop short of breaking it. Here's the prohibition. Here's the no trespassing sign, but it didn't say no trespassing right here. So I can go this far and I'm good, right? Right? God actually wants us to pursue the opposite. He wants us to pursue faithfulness, to pursue truth. Not just stopping short of the prohibition. God's God's law is not about jumping through hoops. It's not about avoiding obstacles. It's not about just keeping within the lines. That's not what it's about. It's a motivation that drives us to serve those around us. We actually seek what is best for one another. We don't just stop short at not doing harm to one another and calling that love. That's not love. In, a, in your own marriage or in your own relationships, you can tell the difference between that. When your spouse is loving you, there's an active piece to it. There's an active motivation element to it where they are seeking your good and your well-being. You can tell the difference between that and and the one who is just not yelling at you. Okay, well, it's good that your spouse is not yelling at you. It's good that your spouse is not being mean to you, but that is not the same as pursuing your well-being. And that's what the love, uh, a Christian love, that's what the love of the law would have us do. So the first thing that I want to comment is on, on is that we we get a new understanding of what the law is when we look at this passage. And secondly... Uh, it raises a question for us about the relationship to the law. What is love's relationship to the law? Love doesn't replace the law. Love explains the law. Love is the guiding force, particularly of the second table of the law here. It's the explanation of what is going on in the law. Why do these things? Because love. So there's a relationship between Love and the law that uh, our passage today under uh, helps us understand in a better way. But that raises a second question. What's the Christian's relationship to the law? What's my relationship to the law? Well, if, if I am seeking to do the law in order to achieve or acquire, somehow obtain God's favor for me, then I have a wrong understanding of the law. I cannot accomplish that. I will always be frustrated if that is how I understand salvation to be to work. If, if I think that I must do this in order for God to be pleased with me. I must do this in order to be rightly related to God. I must do this in order to stay in God's family. I have a wrong understanding of the law. And I have a wrong understanding of myself. That I cannot do that perfectly. And so if I put that standard before me, I will never meet that standard. So I have two options. Despair, which is the option a lot of a lot of Christians take. They despair, but they do so quietly because as Pastor Woody said earlier, we're all together and we know how to smile in front of one another. Everything's fine, everything's fine. There's death inside. Everything's good. Yeah, praise the Lord. We despair, but we usually do so quietly. Now, for some people, this results in them despairing and leaving, ditching the whole thing. But for most of us, the despair results in a a fake smile on Sunday morning. That's one option. Another option is to say, well, God, you know, if God tells us we must do this, that must mean that we are able to do it. Therefore, I will lower God's standard so that I can jump over it. So it doesn't, it doesn't mean actually ultimate perfection. It means something I can do. And I really meant to do good there, so yeah, that—that that, I, I cleared that hurdle. So we lower God's standard, and thus, what's the result? Hey, I did it. Did you see that? That's awesome. I'm awesome because I did that. Right? So you have, those are your two options. Despair or self-righteousness, if that's your standard. The relationship of the law that we truly have as Christians that we need to keep in mind is that God's law is still binding, meaning this is how God still wants us to behave. It doesn't, you know, just because we are in Christ doesn't mean that this commandment is removed, you shall not commit adultery. Nope. That commandment is still there and it's still binding upon us. We are still expected to do it, but this is in a different relationship. The Christian has been placed into the family of God. Purely by what Christ has accomplished, He's the one who met the standard of the law. He's the one who achieved righteousness. And by faith in Him, it's credited to us, while our disobedience and failure to keep the law has been placed upon Him and punished in Him. And thus, we have that standing before God that by faith, we stand before Him in right relationship. Praise the Lord. That's unassailable. Now, how do you live tomorrow? Oh, well, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Honor your father and mother. The same commands are there, but now they are commands given to the one who is in right relationship with God. They're given to us as a, a helpful and a hopeful description and explanation and pathway to teach us how to walk in Christ. So the same law is there. The same commandment is there, only... It's not a ladder for me to climb to achieve something with God. It's just the path that he wants me to walk as a child of God. And by the way, we're going to learn this in our Sunday school class this summer. Shameless plug. He has given us his spirit to live within us. who oh, empowers us to walk in obedience to him. Not perfectly, but he empowers us to love where we did not love. He empowers us to change where we need change. He empowers us to walk in obedience to God where before we had no power and no desire to do so. So it changes our relationship to law, the understanding of this passage. It also helps us understand love. This is the final point, understanding love. The word that I couldn't remember for that brief moment when it was a blessing that I couldn't remember that word. Uh, was very important for that conversation. Well, understanding what love means is very important in our day and age. We live in a time when when uh, the word love is used in a, a number of different ways, many of which are utterly unbiblical, and and many of which are directly contrary to the Bible. And law here helps us to understand what love means. I'll give you an example. In our culture today, we are told that since God is love, if two men love one another, they ought to be able to marry and their so-called marriage be put on an equal footing with marriage between a man and a woman. Because God is love and they have love and that's the determining factor, right? That's the argument, that's the reasoning in its in its in its basic form. But even just as we've looked at the topic today, we can see that that we can't pit the law of God, which speaks negatively about such a thing. It would decry and say, no, it's actually unlawful. You can't do that. That is not actually a marriage. When, When two men are being joined together, that's not a marriage. God has defined that it is a marriage between a man and a woman. And so this is not marriage. God's law says that. Well the, the modern argument would say uh, yeah maybe maybe God's law says that maybe but the fact is God is love and we need to we need to take that core of understanding and that was applied and developed in an ancient culture in a particular way, but in our day and age love uh, means different things and so we should say that it's okay for this union to take place. We should call that marriage, we should acknowledge that as love. From looking at our passage today, from looking at the connection between law and love, we see that there is no break between what is lawful and what is loving. The point is that to love someone means to seek what is lawful, according to God's word, for that person. So that relationship, they don't actually love each other in a biblical fashion. Because love for another person... In a biblical sense, would recognize that would be sinful and wrong. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. That's what the loving thing to do would be. Similarly, when a when a a, a young man is is pressuring a young woman into a sexual uh, a, a physical relationship, he usually you know brings in love. That'll that'll sell. That'll sell it. Or maybe a young couple, before they're married, they move in together and they're living together and and, uh, they know they shouldn't. They've been to church and and they know they shouldn't do that, but they really love each other. No, they don't. At least not as it's expressed here, because love for one another seeks what is good for myself and for that other person. I am to love my neighbor as myself. And so the expression of love in that situation will be to seek faithfulness, chastity, purity, holiness, holiness. Not some, kind of, not some kind of sinful relationship that's based on a so-called love. That is not love. Love that leads to that behavior is not biblical love. Biblical love seeks what is good and what is best for the other person. Love for one another looks like the Ten Commandments towards one another. If it doesn't look like the obedience to God's law, it is not love in the biblical sense. So our passage today is really, really brief, and I have just a couple of uh, closing remarks that, that are very, very important for us. Because we looked at God's law, and we only looked at four of the commands, and we talked about some others, uh, but we fail at those. You and I have failed to keep those. If you think you've not, it's because you're not paying attention. We have failed to keep these towards one another especially when we really see that the law is not just about don't go beyond this border, but it's about pursue the opposite, we realize, well, I mean, I may not have crossed this border exactly, but I have not pursued the opposite as the law would have us do, as love would have us do. And so we realize that actually we've broken God's law. And we've only looked at a couple of, of the commandments. If we were to continue looking through the Ten Commandments, it would only get worse. It would only reveal more of our sin. It would only reveal more of our depravity and our selfishness. And so, what do we do with that? What do we do with that when we don't keep God's law? What do we do when we don't love one another as we ought to? Meaning, loving one another as ourselves. What do we do when we break that? Well, we recognize it, first of all. Recognize that it is true that I have, again, broken God's law. I still haven't kept God's law. I am still falling short of keeping God's law. But here's the application. Christian, don't despair. Don't despair. Run to the Father once again. Confess your sin. It's a good thing that our sin be made known to us. It's a good thing that that it be revealed to us what is actually there. Like waking up in the morning, you know, it's not fun to look in the mirror, to see yourself in the mirror, but everyone around you thinks it's a good thing for you to look in the mirror and see what's there so you can fix it. It's good to have revealed to us what is actually going on. And when we look at the law, that's what it does. It reveals to us what is actually going on so that we can take that to God. And we can say again, I have failed to keep your law. Again, I have fallen short of doing what you would have me do. And we confess our sin and we ask for and we find forgiveness in Christ. And he gives it to us joyfully. We celebrate the fact that though our record is unimpressive, is is not good before God, yet the record of Christ's life is perfection. And when God looks at our record, he sees Christ's record. He sees someone who never fell short. Not only did Jesus not cross the boundary, he pursued to the fullest the opposite. And he did so always for his whole life, fulfilling the law, doing so in our place. And so when I look at the law and I see that I fall short, it does a couple of things. One is it it, it causes me to confess my sin to the Father, to ask for forgiveness, to rejoice that Christ has completed that law, that the, the standard has been met, to throw myself upon his mercy, and to celebrate the fact that not only is my record before him perfect because of Christ, but he has placed his spirit within me who empowers me to go and try again seek to love by the power of the spirit and love those around us as god has commanded us to do as as the law tells us to do as paul here tells us to do that we behave in that way we do so trusting god believing him and his work within us and we rejoice That way is not the way of despair. That way is not the way of self-righteousness. I don't have my own righteousness to, to tout. And Jesus perfected, fulfilled, completed the law. And so I don't have to despair. I can rejoice in this relationship that I have with the Father. I can rejoice in this place that He has given me in this position as His child. And I can celebrate what He's done. It may be that that someone here is on the outside of that, has not trusted Christ. It may be that you're still viewing the Ten Commandments or some other form of law as uh, as stepping stones, a stairway, a ladder that will lead you to God. That that will not lead you to God. It will lead you ultimately to despair or to self-righteousness. But if you recognize your inability to keep God's law, if you will recognize as you're thinking about what God has commanded and he demands of us as his creatures that you don't measure up, that's when you need to know that there is a Savior. Jesus Christ himself obeyed this and he offers his track record to you. He offers to give you forgiveness in exchange for your sin, your unrighteousness being placed upon him and punished in him. He offers to make you a child of God. By faith, by trusting in Him, by calling on Him. And so you have the opportunity this morning of doing that even here. You have the opportunity of being made right with God because of what Christ has done. It's my desire that you would do that. And Christian, it's my desire that as we go away from here, we would see God's law in a new light, that we would praise God for this relationship that we have in Him and the fact that He has given us His law, how He wants us to obey. He has been so merciful to us. In Christ and revealing Himself. Let's pray. Father, we have uh, talked about a lot of things today. And those things cause us to realize, cause me to realize my falling short of Your law. To realize that I could never have climbed, I could never have accomplished, I could never have completed and finished what the law demands. not because it's too much or too complex, but because the sinful man doesn't want to. He loves himself more than you. He loves himself more than his neighbor. it causes me to realize just how grateful I am for Jesus, my Savior. Who was obedient to the fullest. Who went to the cross. Not for anything he had done, but for what I have done. To take upon himself the punishment for my sin. And he was crucified and he was buried and he was raised on the third day you indicating that that you were pleased with his offering that it was finished completed and now his righteousness is mine in Christ his life is mine by faith my sin is atoned for and now when I see your law I see it as you telling me how you would have me behave now that you've made me your own and i rejoice in that i fall short but i rejoice in it throw myself upon your mercy and praise you that you have forgiven me and you have made me your own and you have placed your holy spirit within me who is at work even now father i pray that you would be at work in each of us here in these ways that we would Celebrate Christ, that we would rejoice in him, that we would not shun your law, that we would not uh, shun one another, but that we would relate to one another in love, knowing that those in Christ have been redeemed in exactly the same way that we have, that we are brothers and sisters. And may we love one another as ourselves in the power of Christ. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. There will be a family up here to pray for you. In just a moment before we go, I want to read for us from Numbers chapter six, a very familiar blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May God richly bless you and you are dismissed.